often when we think of mission, we think about being sent. We can look at how God sent the Son. We can see how the, the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And we can see how Jesus also sends us. We look at the Great Commission and we see how Jesus tells his disciples and now us to go and make disciples throughout the whole earth. Even when we look at passages like Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we focus on how Jesus tells his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, whilst forgetting that he also tells them to stay and preach the gospel in their hometown, in their home city, Jerusalem. And as we look at this passage today, we see Jesus telling a, a brand new convert, somebody who has just come to faith, to stay in his community and to preach the gospel. You see, the Bible is clear that there are uh, Christians who are called to go, to be sent out. But the Bible is also clear that God wants some Christians to stay. Yet recently, when I was explaining that if more Christians would move to our areas, would fund our local churches and would pray for our local churches, if our local churches felt supported, then indigenous Christians, people local to our local churches, they might stay instead of moving on. And the person I was explaining this said to me, is that fair? Should we be asking people who have an opportunity to move from an area of deprivation to stay? Is that fair? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. If we're asking people to come, then surely we should be asking the people who already live here to stay. And I don't think it's just my personal preference. I think that is something that Jesus asks us to consider as well, especially when we look at these verses. If we look at verses 18 to 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This man was demon-possessed. His life was a mess. He was an outcast. He was homeless. He was living amongst the tombs. He was feared. He was struggling mentally and spiritually. He was self-harming himself. And now people were angry at him because since he's been healed, somebody's lost 2,000 pigs and it's costing somebody an absolute fortune. The man had nothing to make him want to stay in his home community. He had now met Jesus. He'd gone from being controlled by a, a spirit to being set by free by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His life was transformed. Before him was his saviour. And like any of us would have done, we'd have thought, I'm getting out of Dodge and I'm going with Jesus. He had the opportunity to be with his new brothers, the disciples, to walk around with Jesus, to witness miracles day by day, to learn from the best preacher there has ever lived. And he didn't just desire to be with him. He didn't just think this would be a good idea. He begged Jesus. He was desperate and he pleaded to go with Jesus. Yet Jesus doesn't give him what he's begging for. He gives him the opposite. He says, stay here and go tell everyone 
what I've done for you. Yet he doesn't do what I do. He doesn't spit his dummy out. He doesn't start complaining or huffing or puffing and, and going off in a mood. He immediately obeys Jesus and goes and tells his people what Jesus has done for him. And they're amazed. You see, some people think it's exciting to be sent out on a mission, especially to areas of deprivation. When I speak to people who are considering it, especially people who come from a middle-class background, some people who are here today I've chatted with and they've asked me my advice and they say that uh, we're, we're going to count the cost before we move because we want to see how much it will impact us financially. It might, in fact, impact the kids educationally because they'll have to go to a school that isn't as good as the school where we live already. Other people uh, worry about leaving family behind. Uh, by moving to an area of deprivation in another part of the country, that means that parents and brothers and sisters might be a long distance away. Many talk about sacrificing ambitions and dreams by moving on to a council estate to be part of a church plant. Many people from a middle-class background perceive that it must be easier for somebody like me who is uh, ministering in an estate where he grew up. It must be easier for working-class people to minister in a working-class area. But I want you to think about tonight to understand that the truth is council estate ministry is tough, whether you come from a middle-class background or whether you come from a working-class background. Whether you are middle class or working class, whether your desire is to move off a council estate or whether you fear moving on one, serving Jesus requires obedience. It requires obedience from all of us. Like we see the type of obedience with the demon-possessed man. Sometimes all of us are required to sacrifice our dreams and our ambitions for the sake of the gospel. And I just wonder if there's anybody here tonight who's been on their knees praying and begging Jesus for something, yet found themselves being given something quite different than what they asked for. I wonder if you've ever prayed for a certain lifestyle or a certain job or a certain church to be part of or an opportunity to come your way, only to be shown that Jesus wants to give you something different. And we need to ask ourselves, all of us need to ask ourselves, do we see prayers and opportunity for Jesus to help us fulfill our ambitions? Or do we have an ambition to pray to change our hearts so that we can please and follow Jesus? Do we ask Jesus to get us to a point in our life that we want to be? Or are we willing to be taken to a place in our life where he wants us to be? A few years back, we did a, a gospel and class conference, and Andy Prime spoke, and many people were encouraged by his talk about uh, the struggles of a middle-class pastor on a council estate. This talk was very helpful. It brought lots of insights to help middle-class uh, gospel workers to understand what it's like to be in ministry in an area of deprivation. Well, tonight I want to be talking about the struggles of a working class pastor on a council estate. 
And I'm going to use this passage to help us all understand some of the unique challenges that I and many other working class people might face when ministering on a council estate. So let's look again at Mark 5, 1 to 5. It says that they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is an awful picture. Often we can look at this man as a monster, but if you think about what this man was going through, spiritually depraved, living amongst the dead, lonely, isolated, and outcasts. He'd been imprisoned either for his own safety or for the safety of his local community. He was a danger to himself. He was a, a danger to others. He was a handful. He was physically intimidating. People were afraid of him. And he would often self-harm. This man was well known. He, he had a reputation, but that reputation wasn't a good one. People avoided him. And as soon as he sees Jesus, he, he runs towards him. And I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who can relate to this man, who can understand what this man was going through, having a mental or spiritual torment, living in dark, darkness, feeling like a, an outcast, struggling and battling with sin. For others here, it might not resonate with you, but it might remind you of people that you're working with, people in your church or people who live in your community. The drug addict or the drunk arguing with himself in the street. The person constantly trying to end their life in and out of mental health institutions. The burglar, the, the local billy, the, the wife and child abuser, the racist our communities are full of people like this man. Often we see people like this on a daily basis. Often we see them and we're afraid of them, like the Gerasenes were. When they saw this man, they abandoned him because they were afraid. And often we see people like this and ourselves will be afraid. But just imagine, just imagine if despite all the obstacles in this man's life, in the shoplifter's life, in the drug addict's life, or uh, the ex-offender's life, just despite these obstacles, in his personal life and in our churches, that he actually comes to faith. Imagine that man who everyone feared, who everyone avoided or pitied, became a Christian and joined our church. Then imagine he got the support that he needed and he deserved. Imagine he got the training and he was equipped to become a gospel worker, and then a preacher, and then a pastor. Imagine this man who ever, everybody remembers as the local nutter, the addict, the thief, or the bully. Imagine he starts preaching. How do you think people would respond? Do you think they would trust his preaching? Or do you think they would dismiss him because of his past? And before you answer, let's look at Matthew 
13, 53 to 58. It says that when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Just look again at verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Took offense at the preaching of Jesus, the Son of God, King of kings, the Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth, the best preacher the world has ever heard or seen. Fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life with out sin, his local community saw his perfect life from birth to adulthood. Yet because of his past, because they knew him when he was a boy, because they knew his mother and his father, a carpenter, because of his past reputation, people were offended at this carpenter's son. So how do you think the people would have responded to the preaching of this man from the tombs, or the drug addict, or the burglar, or the man with mental health, or the beggar from outside Asda, when they start to preach. You see, if we want council estate Christians to stay in our communities, we need to be careful that we don't limit their giftings because of what we think about their past lives, because of what we think about their past reputation. We need to be able to support and we need to be able to encourage them when they face opposition. And if you're a council estate Christian thinking about going into ministry, especially on your estate, you need to be prepared for the consequences of your past sin and for your past lifestyle. Because this might mean that many people won't take the gospel that you preach or you seriously. They may dismiss us and like with Jesus, take offense to our preaching, at least in the short term. <coughs> Verses 6 to 13 go on and say that when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. 
the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This man who was tormented by evil spirits, he gets on his knees, he submits to the authority of Jesus. The evil spirits that were tormenting him recognize who Jesus is, the, the Son of God. They panic and they plead with him for mercy. And Jesus sends the spirits into the, the herd of pigs. And the spirits kill the pigs. And many Bible scholars believe that's exactly what the spirits were trying to do to this man, to kill him. The self-arm, his isolation, his violence... They're all things that the devil loves. They wreck communities. Yet praise God, because we see that the power of the demonic must submit to the authority of Jesus. We see how the devil and sin brings death. Yet we also see how Jesus and bowing our knee before him brings life. This poor man was tormented. He was controlled by the demonic. And yet Jesus immediately sets him free. He's healed instantly. He's in full control of his mind and his emotions. He's mentally well and he's spiritually transformed. This man who was possessed re received a, a complete and immediate healing in his life. These life-controlling issues that were destroying him, he's set free from them. Miraculously by Jesus, immediately set free so he could immediately serve his Savior. Jesus saved this man for a purpose. Jesus saves us all for a purpose. However, for, for many new converts from my background, being set free from the things that have controlled their lives isn't as immediate as it was for this man. Very rarely are we set free from life-controlling issues in a blink of an eye. Very rarely do we see that. I was saved and baptized in 2003. I was married in 2005. And my last drug and my last violent encounter was in 2007. During that time, I'd moved from my community. But in times of trouble, I would still go back like a, a, a dog goes back to its sick. I would go back to my community when I was feeling low and tempted and I was struggling with my mental health and addiction and, and my behavior. Although I was being sanctified, probably wouldn't reflect that I was a Christian at times. Staying in my community wasn't an option for me. Even visiting would often bring me back to my old way of life. It wasn't until 2012 that I returned after several years of being clean and continuing with discipleship and being built up in the spirit and God's word that I felt safe enough to return to the community where I grew up. But even though God has set me free from these life-controlling uh, addictions, I still have many daily battles with fears and desires that once kept me enslaved. And we need to remember that as churches, we can fall into one of two traps, especially when responding to somebody who comes from a chaotic background. We can either palm them off to another church, 
Somebody gets saved and we think, wow, they're going to be hard work. Let's palm them off to a rehab or to another church. Or we can go the complete opposite and start parading them around as our trophy is great and putting them on a platform for everyone to see and taking pride and look at this demographic that was once uh, missing from our churches, now present, aren't we doing well reaching the people, the working class and the chaotic? As churches, we need to ask ourselves and ask them, what is best for you rather than what is best for us as a church? Before we ask people to stay and minister in our communities, we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to give them the time, the effort, and the love and discipleship that they need to protect them from their temptations and the consequences from their past lives? And as council of state Christians, we need to be honest with ourselves. Do we need to go? Do we need to grow? Do we need to stay and serve? We need to know. We know why we stay. Sometimes we want to stay so we can be close to our comforts and temptations. And if that's the case, we need to go and spend some time growing, finding it uncomfortable for a while, but growing in love and knowledge of Jesus. And other times, like me, you just want to get out of Dodge because it's tough and you prefer it because it looks like the grass is greener on the other side. Whether we're council estate Christians or discipling council estate Christians, we need to check our hearts for our motivations in asking people to stay or asking them to go. Then verses 14 to 20 say that those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus and leave their region, to leave their region. So here we see a man whose life was ruined by sin and the devil. Not only was his own life a mess, but he was impacting the lives of his local community. Yet when he is saved and he's transformed, his local community aren't rejoicing. They're angry and they are afraid. Afraid of Jesus and his life-transforming power and angry at how all the pigs had been killed and the money that had been lost. This shows that his local community cared more about themselves and their finances than the life of the man who was saved. It also shows that people can often react negatively to those who come to faith and are transformed by Jesus. The people didn't want Jesus interfering in their way of life anymore, and they begged Jesus to leave. If we look at Luke 15, verse 7, it says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Luke 15, 7 tells us that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their angels rejoice when someone gets saved. Yet quite often, when somebody from our community gets saved, their family and the rest of the community are far from rejoicing. It can provoke anger and it can provoke fear. 
I remember when I was first saved and I was trying to get clean and I told my friends that I can't knock around with you anymore. I'm, I'm going to move out the area. I can't meet you for a drink. And they took that as me saying that I was better than them. They thought that, I thought uh, because I was a Christian, I was above them. That wasn't the case. I couldn't meet them because of my sin. But they were offended by what I was saying. I was at a family wedding and for the first time, I hadn't got drunk, I hadn't got into a fight, and I hadn't insulted anyone. And one of my uncles said to me, you were much more fun before you became a Christian. There was also a colleague and a friend of mine I worked with who was in a same-sex relationship. And when she found out I'd become a Christian, she was offended and actually told me, I thought you were better than that. You see, when we welcome new converts into our church, we need to be willing to be the family and friends that they need. Because often, when people from my background come to faith, they risk losing friends and family. And we need to encourage new believers to continue sharing the gospel, but remind them that some people won't be as excited as we are, or they are, about it. So finally, as we close, let's look at verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Imagine how awesome this bloke was for him. He's been living amongst the dead, self-harming, isolated and hated, and now his life is transformed. He's been set free from the demons that were trying to destroy him. Now he stood face to face with Jesus. Imagine that, face to face with your Lord and Savior. No wonder he begged to go with Jesus. And I'm sure that, the, that most of his motivation for wanting to be with Jesus was, was love and adoration. I'm sure that he was grateful for being set free. I'm sure that most of his motivation was godly. But there must have also been a little ambition in there too. A desire to leave his past behind. Imagine hanging out with Jesus every day. Witnessing miracles, salvation. Hearing the best preacher preach every day. Yet Jesus in his wisdom knows what is best for his kingdom and he knows what is best for this man is for him to stay serving in his community. A community that, that knows him rather than in a place where he would be anonymous and despised. And because of this, he denies the man's request and he tells him to stay put and to preach about the mercy of Jesus to those that know him best. I just wonder how good you would be, hoping for the big time, to set off on a, a journey of a lifetime with Jesus. Jesus and his disciples, once alone in the tomb now with your Lord and Saviour and with a, a band of brothers. That was your hope. That was what you were pleading for. Yeah. Instead, uh, son, I think you're better off staying here. How, how impressed would you be with that? Yet this man doesn't grumble. He doesn't take offense, and he does exactly what he's told. This man is not 
driven by ambition. This man is driven by obedience to his saviour. He understands that it is who he has been called by that is important, not where he is being called to. And regarding this verse, the, the Jameson, Fawcett and Brown commentary says that to be a missionary for Christ in the region where he was so well known and so long dreaded was a far nobler calling than to follow him where nobody had ever heard of him and where other trophies, not less illustrious, could be raised by the same power and grace. This man didn't see his calling as second best or inferior. He knew that it was valuable to Jesus and vital to his people. And for those of you who, like me, come from a smaller church, I'm sure you will have felt similar things when you've attended bigger churches. Have you ever been to a church that seems to be reaching the lost, that seems to have salvations and baptisms every other day? A church with an awesome pastor who preaches the best sermon you've ever heard, who has an awesome worship group, who just know how to praise Jesus in just the right way. Children's work that you've never seen before. Church buildings that are huge. Uh, gospel teams that are just as big. And budgets that are even bigger. Have you ever looked at your tiny little church and looked at this other larger church and thought to yourself, I'd much rather be called to that church than to be called in this little church where I serve right now? I, have you ever thought, I'd much rather serve there than serve here? Maybe you're thinking that now about your church. Maybe you have an opportunity to move on. But how would you feel if Jesus was asking you to stay, to preach, and to worship in the community and the church that you're already at? Are you tempted to leave your community and your little church to join a bigger, better church? Because that church seems to be doing more important things. And if you were there, you would be seen as more important and your ministry would be seen as more important. I've been there and I know many of us get there. So let's finish by just reminding ourselves what Jesus says in verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. This man went back to the community where he was known and told them what Jesus had done for him. And they were amazed. And we are all saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to tell people what Jesus has done for us. And we need to remind ourselves what Jesus has done for every one of us in this room. How he gave up his glory in heaven and came to earth as a man. Fully God, so he was perfect and divine. Yet fully human, so he could suffer the, the pain, the illness, the grief and sadness that we know. He lived a perfect life, never sinning, a life that we should live, but never could. And the reason he did this was to bring glory to the Father in heaven, the Father that we have rejected, and to be a perfect sacrifice so we as sinners can have him die in our place, a, an awful death on the cross, a painful, humiliating death that we deserved, he took it. 
He didn't just die so that we could be forgiven. He died so that we could be adopted as children as the living God. And he didn't just stay dead. He defeated not just sin, but death when he was arose three days later so that we can have the hope of eternal life. And one day he's going to return. He's going to return for his church that we need to be thankful for. But he's also going to return to judge sinners who we need to be praying for and reaching with the gospel. When you remember what Jesus has done for you, are you amazed? Does it excite you? Does it remind you of what first amazed you when you fell at his feet like this man and experienced his life-transforming power? Because if we aren't preaching the name of Jesus, we need to get on our knees and be reminded exactly what Jesus has done for us. Be reminded as the mercy that he has shown us. Because once we're excited about what Jesus has done for us, we can be sure that other people will be excited what he can do for them too. And if we want to encourage those who aren't from our communities to move in and join our churches and our church plants, we also need to encourage the Christians who have been saved in our communities to stay. Yet in doing this, we, we have to be wise about the challenges that these Christians will face. We need to support them. We need to pray for them, to love them, to give financially to them. We need to work alongside them. And this takes all of us, all of the church throughout our country to do that. This week, we're asking people to come to give and to pray for the work of Medhurst Ministries. As Medhurst Ministries, we want to work alongside churches and the forgotten places to encourage the pastors, the planters, the members, and the gospel workers so that together, as a church, our praying, our giving, and our preaching about the mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, We'll see the people of these forgotten towns, of these forgotten estates, of these forgotten villages, not just amazed, but saved. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you and we just stand amazed at your mercy. And Lord, please remind us when we forget and get bogged down with the nitty gritty of life that what we have today is temporary, but your love and mercy is eternal. I pray that you will have us excited by the name of Jesus, that we will be amazed at your grace and mercy for us individually and that you will give us a passion to share about your grace and mercy to the lost. Father, I pray that this ministry, Lord, that this weekend will not be just a time of fun and friendship, but it will be deeper than that, that we will be stirred to love you, to serve you, to serve our churches and to serve the lost. This isn't about funding, Lord. This isn't about a network of churches. This is about reaching communities for the name of Jesus, for your glory, for the sake of your church, and for the sake of the lost. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.